If you're in the room, could you please open your Bibles to Matthew 9. We're going to be looking at verses 18 to 26. Matthew 9, 18 to 26. says while he was staying while he was saying these things to them behold a ruler came in and knelt before him saying my daughter has just died but come and lay your hand on her and she will live and Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples and behold a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away. For the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in, took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. I don't know about you, but I love a good sandwich. Who here loves a good sandwich? I love sandwiches. It's that, you know, cuisine where you could put all the things that you love between two buns. Meats, cheeses, sauces, vegetables, if you have to, right? I don't know if you noticed, but this is a, a narrative sandwich. There's a little story within a big story. Did you catch it? The ruler came to Jesus asked him to revive his daughter. And then on the way to the ruler's house, this woman, who had a terrible disease, interacted with Jesus and was healed. And then the story continues. He makes it to the ruler's house, and he raises his little girl from the dead. It's a miracle sandwich. Not to be confused with a miracle whip sandwich. That is of darkness, okay? A miracle sandwich. Well, I believe that these two people intersecting is not a coincidence. That these healings parallel each other in many ways. And they come to us in a package to show us that Jesus the King has power over death. He restores and He revives the sinner in salvation. See, what happens physically to these two women in these miracles, happens spiritually in your life if you are a true believer in Christ. He has made what is unclean, clean. He has made what was dead, alive. He has granted you faith to believe. You're going to find your own testimony somewhere in this sandwich. And so pay close attention. As a believer or maybe as an unbeliever, to behold Jesus in His power over sin and death. 
This is an incredible interaction, two incredible testimonies of Jesus' power. We're going to first start in your outline with the two people who are desperate and dependent. Desperate and dependent. There are two people in these stories that have two vastly different social statuses. One is a ruler. And we're given more information in the other Gospels, the parallel accounts. His name is Jairus, and he's actually a ruler in the synagogue. This is a position of significance. He has influence. He has the respect of the community. Now, the other is a woman, and she has an unstoppable bleed. And that's, by the way, not just a health problem, but that is a social and a religious problem. Leviticus 15 tells us, the law, that when a woman has a discharge of blood, she is declared unclean until it stops. And by the way, whoever touches her, or ever she touches, is also declared unclean. So this woman's hemorrhage prevents her from participating in the community, prevents her from social activities, prevents her from all religious activities. She cannot go to the temple and worship. She can't walk into the synagogue. So we have a synagogue ruler and an outcast of society. And these two paths would not have intersected ever in life if they both didn't find themselves desperate and standing at death's door. The ruler's daughter has died. And this woman will die if the hemorrhage is not stopped. There's a a famous northern renaissance oil painting called The Triumph of Death. It's a, a pretty graphic oil painting depicting death. There's a skeleton army that is blowing through this coastal village, destroying everything. And for those who can't see it, this skeleton army is killing child and elder, killing the king and peasant, noble and beggar, killing the musicians, killing the soldiers, killing the religious, killing the pagan. Everyone dies. Thus the point. Death reigns. And we know that to be true. Romans 5.12 tells us that the reign of death is because of sin. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men. We will all die, lest the Lord comes to take us home before then. So death is the great leveler of persons. It's an every man problem. Because every man sins. Death is impartial. Doesn't care if you're young or old. Rich or poor. Whether you die suddenly or slowly, it's like a steamroller and it crushes everyone down to dust. Death, the prospect of death, makes us desperate. I want to ask you, when was the last time that you considered the subject of death? 
When will you die? How will you die? Who's next to die in your life? I don't mean to be morbid for the sake of being morbid, but wisdom tells us to consider death, to take it seriously. Death sobers us up. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 7.2, it's better to go into a house of mourning than to go into a house of feasting. Death reorients our priorities. It it helps us to remember what's really important and what's not. It, It gets us out of the shallows of life and plunges us into the things that are deep, the things that matter. When did you last consider death? Unfortunately for many, they don't consider the reality of death until death comes knocking or they're at death's door like these two individuals. And, and being at death's door makes one desperate. Makes one desperate. And so let's consider the desperation of these two individuals. They are both desperate. First, the ruler. Matthew tells us, look at verse 18, that the ruler came in and knelt before him. That's a little modest. Mark and Luke paint a little bit of a different picture, a little bit more elaborate in their telling of the story. They tell us that this man falls at Jesus' feet and he begs Him. He's pleading with Him. Why? Because his only daughter has died. Luke tells us that his only daughter is about 12 years old. Can you imagine, parents, The desperation, the helplessness, the urgency of this man. I mean, (laughs) taking my kids to the hospital for stitches is hard enough. But to watch my child die, I can't imagine. I recently talked with a father who lost his only son. And his only son happened to be 12 years old. And he was sharing with me that it was, uh, he's a believer, he was sharing with me that it was God's time to take him home. And that he and his wife have learned to trust God through the tragedy. I said, wow, that's, that's an incredible perspective. I mean, it's amazing for you to say that you have learned through this. He said, it's the only one I've got. It's the only option I had. Was to trust God or not. I mean, losing a child makes one desperate. So parents, we understand the urgency and the desperation of this father. And what about the woman? She is just as desperate. Luke tells us that she's been to all the doctors, all the physicians. She spent all her money trying to get well, but no one could heal her. No one could help her. So here she is now broke and utterly helpless. And you know what? People get radical when they're desperate. They will do radical things. Remember, this ruler is a synagogue official. He sits on the board of the synagogue with other Pharisees. Do you think it was a good look for him to be falling at the feet of Jesus? 
the one that they called a blasphemer? Do you think the Pharisees encouraged this man to go see Jesus? Or do you think probably his seat was on the line? He didn't care. He's desperate. And he goes to Jesus. How about the woman? This woman, an outcast of society, not able to enter into social um, uh, activities, not able to enter religious activities. Jesus is known as a holy man. What would people think if they saw her come into the crowd, rub shoulders with other people, much less touch the holy man Jesus? She didn't care. She's willing to take that risk. Embarrassment, more shame. She gets to a place where she can just touch him. Now, I wonder if you've found yourself this desperate in life. Whatever the situation in your life, you've come to a place of helplessness, a place of feeling hopeless. You've come to the end of your rope, so to speak, rock bottom. Maybe you've felt the overwhelming fear of death or the overwhelming sorrow of the death of a loved one. Maybe, hopefully, you can feel the urgency of these two individuals, the urgency to do something, the willingness to get radical. Listen, desperation is a good thing. It is a good thing when it takes you to the feet of Jesus. The desperation in your life is a good thing when it takes you to the feet of Jesus. And that's where these two individuals find themselves. Their desperation led them to the right place, the right person. And so the rulers and and the woman's desperation, it turns into dependence and faith. They cast themselves wholly to Jesus for help, for salvation. Look at what the ruler says in verse 18. He said, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. The woman says to herself in verse 21, if I only touch his garment, I will be made alive. Notice the confidence in those statements. Those are future indicatives. They are saying for certain. This is a statement of fact. This will happen. He will. He will help. He will save. He will revive. He will restore. Hebrews 11 says that the faith, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It is the conviction that goes to the depths of your soul. He will. He will. I know it. I'm confident in Him. That's faith. And so these two individuals, there's nothing they can do. There's nothing no one else can do. Certainly not physicians. Certainly no mere man can raise a a girl from the dead. And so they fall at the feet of Jesus. They admit, I'm broken, I'm needy, I'm empty, I'm poor, I'm sick, I'm helpless, I'm a sinner, but He will. That's faith. That's a statement, a profession of faith. And And that's the statement you must make. That's the confidence you must have in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. Who's going to forgive your sin? 
Who's going to pay your fine? He will. Who is going to conquer death? Who's going to give you eternal life? He will. Who is going to reverse the curse? The sin that made all everything wrong. Who's going to make everything that's wrong right? He will. And when you're desperate, don't go anywhere else because He will. Let your desperation lead you to the feet of Jesus Christ. Whatever you're going through. It's the right person, the right place to fall at the feet of. Their desperation and their dependence meets divine compassion and power. That's point number two in your outline. Divine compassion and power. This is the the bitter sweet of coming to Jesus desperate. Is that these two people find compassion and power. First, compassion. The compassion of Jesus to deal, and when he deals with these two individuals, is remarkable. First of all, this Jairus, you know, he comes begging Jesus. He, he falls at his feet and he pleads with him, but he doesn't have to twist Jesus' arm to get him to come to his house. He's available. He comes right away. We see that in verse 19. Jesus rose and he followed him. He made himself available to this man. And by the way, you know, when this woman comes up in the middle, oh goodness, man, if I have one urgent task on my plate, and some of you feel this, if I have one urgent task on my plate, that is all I can think about, right? I mean, here Jesus is going to the house of a ruler whose daughter just died. I mean, humanly, we think, oh my goodness, that's overwhelming, the pressure on the Lord. And then here is this interruption, this annoyance, this unclean woman who intercedes. And Jesus isn't annoyed with her. He doesn't pause and go, oh, the timing couldn't, couldn't have been any better. No, he is kind He's gentle. He's very tender with this woman. Turning to her in verse 22, look at this. He says, take heart, have courage. And what does he call her? Daughter. Wow. This woman doesn't have a name, or at least not told her name in Scripture. But Jesus gives her a title that I would say is better than him saying her name. He calls her daughter, my child. What a tender moment for this woman where, where the rest of society has thrown her out, disassociated, maybe even disowned. This woman has had an, an hemorrhage for 12 years. And Jesus, in a very tender moment, says, take heart, have courage, daughter. Wow. The Lord is so compassionate. And let's talk about the touch, shall we? People make a big fuss about the touch of Jesus, especially in these miracles. And then faith healers wrongly will say that the power was in the touch and that they should, like Jesus, be touching individuals and through the, the holy man's touch they can heal 
other people. But what does the touch signify? What does it really mean that the Lord touched the little girl and He allowed this unclean woman to touch Him? See, the ruler's request, let's go back to verse 18. He says, come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And then we see at the end, what did Jesus do in verse 25? When the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand. He touched her. And the girl arose. Could Jesus have raised this little girl with a word? He could. And he did, by the way. Not her, but he raised Lazarus, Lazarus, Lazarus with a word, didn't he? He commanded Lazarus out of the tomb. He said, Lazarus, come forth. Jesus, just like with the centurion servant, could have said from afar, your little girl is alive. Raise her from the dead without the touch. So why did he touch her? Why the touch? How about the woman? The ruler asked if Jesus would come touch his daughter. The the woman suggests, and her strategy is, if I can only touch him. If I can only touch him. He says, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And then verse 20, she touched the fringe of his garment. The touch. In Mark 5.29, the parallel account, it says, at the touch she was healed. It says, immediately the flow of blood dried up in that moment. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Now ask yourself the same question. Did she need to be touched To be healed? No. Not necessarily. Jesus could have cast her disease out with a word. Just like He did the demons. Just like He did the others who have diseases. So why the touch? Why is that significant? Stay with me here. You need to know something. Both of these girls, the little girl who's dead and the woman, who has a discharge. They're both unclean. Both of them. And so, according to the law, Jesus touching them, or them touching Jesus, would make Him unclean. The woman, we're we're told in Leviticus 15, that she's forbidden from being touched or touching anyone else. In Numbers 19, there's a clear command from God, whoever touches a dead body, is declared unclean for seven days. So why does Jesus touch them? Are you following? Here's what the touch signifies. Here's the significance of the touch. Jesus grabbing the little girl by the hand, touching her to revive her. Jesus allowing the woman to touch Him. It's not about power. Power was not in the touch. Listen, compassion was in the touch. This was a display of the Lord Jesus' compassion, His mercy. The compassion of God to reach out, to condescend in the form of a man, and touch unclean, dead sinners. Like this woman, these two women, and like you and I. God is compassionate. He's merciful. He reaches out to relieve us 
of our pain. To restore us when we are unclean. To revive us when we're dead. Jesus is touchable. He came down and became a man. Took on the form of a man. Walked among sinners. Ate with them. Condescended. Jesus is compassionate. The hand of God moved not away from the defiled, but towards them to touch the unclean and the dying people. And notice the touch doesn't defile Jesus. What the touch does is it cleanses the sinner. Jesus is not defiled by these touches, but He cleanses those who come in contact with Him. Jesus The divine is the source of power. God is the source of power. The touch is an expression of compassion. I mean, think about parents with your children. The effect of a compassionate touch, a hand on the shoulder, an affectionate hug, expressions of affection, of love. That's what God did to us, with us, and that's what Jesus does with these two helpless, hopeless girls. Women. Compassion is in his touch. This miracle, these miracles, they're a picture of what God does in our life. We're guilty rebels. We're unclean because of our sins. We've defiled ourselves. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2. But thanks be to God, God shows us compassion By sending His Son. And Jesus Christ, He bears our griefs, carries our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, Isaiah 53. He died in our place and He rose from the dead so that we might be counted righteous, so that we can be washed, so that we would be released, forgiven from our guilt, made alive by His power. And it's because of His great love His abundant mercy, His lavish grace, that these truths are a reality in your life if you know Christ. Compassion was in His touch. Do you know the compassionate touch of Christ where He spiritually came down, touched your soul to make you new, touched your soul to clean you, to wash you, and to make you right with God? Have you experienced that level of compassion? That level of mercy? And if you're desperate, again, touch the Son like this woman did. Touch the Son by faith and He will make you well. By the way, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are not mercy misers. We're not hoarders of God's mercy. We're mercy ministers. Those who have been forgiven much, love much. Those who have received mercy should treat others with tenderness and mercy. Just as Christ and God has been tender and merciful to us. So we need to see the compassion of Christ and imitate Him. To ourselves be willing to condescend to the level of those who are desperate, those who are weak, those who are helpless, and meet their needs when we're able Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 7. 
He said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You remember later in Matthew, he separates Jesus, the sheep and the goats. You remember the terms of his separating them? He says to the sheep, he welcomes them on that last day because they fed the hungry, because they quenched the thirsty, because they welcomed the stranger, because they clothed those who were naked, because they visited the sick and those in prison. And then he casts out the goats, the fakers, the frauds, and he casts them into eternal punishment because they didn't do such things. They didn't show mercy. Therefore, no mercy. Compassion, mercy is one of the clearest signs in a believer's life that they've been born again. It's one of the clearest signs that you truly know the love of God, that you've received mercy, is that you will show others mercy. So take opportunities, especially, man, in this season, to show mercy in the name of Jesus Christ. To share Christ, to be gospel proclaimers, but also when you're able to meet needs, do it in the name of Christ. Because that is Christ-like. It's merciful. Desperation and dependence meet divine compassion, and it meets power. Power. Compassion and power. Jesus instantly heals the woman. Jesus does what no physician could do. Jesus says, take heart, daughter, in verse 22, your faith has made you well, and instantly the woman was made well. Well, think about the implications of this. The barriers that were up in front of this woman who who couldn't come and participate in society, couldn't participate in any religious activity. All of a sudden, those barriers are broken. Those walls come down. She went from unclean to clean, from outcast to restored. The power of Jesus Christ can do that in our lives. That's what He does with every single one of us. None of us standing in our sinfulness could stand before a holy God. But thanks be to Jesus Christ who broke down that wall, who broke that barrier. We can't clean ourselves up. We can't make ourselves look good. But Jesus Christ came to clean us up, to make a way to break down the dividing wall that stood between us and God. And so the power of Jesus Christ and what He accomplished in the greater scope of His, uh, His ministry and His work has made us right with God. That's incredible power. That is power that no man has. And in addition to that, He raises this little girl from the dead. Look at verse 23. When Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. This is a Jewish funeral activity. They're wailing, weeping loudly, making a big fuss. Everybody has given up. There's no hope. Or they don't think there's any hope. In fact, Mark and Luke tell us that people try to stop Jesus on the way when they find out she's actually dead. They say, don't bother the teacher. It's over. It's done. She's dead. 
And Jesus says to them in verse 24, He says, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. Sleeping. Now what did Jesus mean by that statement? Listen, He was not saying that she was literally sleeping. Because He said the same thing of Lazarus. He said to those who came and said, Lazarus is seriously sick or Lazarus has died. He said the same thing. He says, no, uh, Lazarus is sleeping. But he clarifies his statement in John eleven fourteen. He says, no, no, Lazarus, because they, they ask questions. They're like, well, is he, is he actually sleeping then? Is he literally sleeping? Jesus clarifies and says, no, no, no Lazarus is dead. But what he means by the fact that Lazarus is sleeping is that his death is only temporary. I'm going to make him alive. And so he means the same thing about Jairus' daughter. She's only temporarily dead. She's dead. There's not a little dead all the way dead. No, no, she's dead, but it's temporary because I intend to revive her. But look at what they say when he says that statement in verse 24. They laughed at him. This word for laughing is not the word for being amused, like hearing a funny joke. This is a condescending laughter. This is when somebody laughs in your face when they've won. It could be rendered, literally translated, they laughed him down. They're mocking him, making fun of him with their laughter. And MacArthur points out that the way they go so quickly from mourning to laughing just shows Not only their lack of faith in Jesus, but their lack of sincere care for Jairus and his family. They don't care. They're going through the motions here. But the crowd is put outside in verse 25. He went in. He took her by the hand. And the girl arose. Talitha Kumi is what he said. We're told that from the parallel accounts. It's a command. He literally said, little girl, I say to you, arise. I command you to get up. This is similar to the tone of Jesus looking at the tomb and saying, Lazarus, come out. He commands this dead girl with authority. An authority that no other man has. He doesn't start with an introduction in the name of or with the power of. He is the power. He says, Talitha Kumi, little girl, come out. And she gets up. She wakes up. Only God can give life to that which is dead. Only God can do that. John 5.21 says this, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, listen, so also the Son, Jesus Christ, gives life to whom He wishes. That is spiritually and physically. Physically, we see God bringing life to dead bodies throughout the Scripture. Not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. God has the power to enliven, to breathe the breath of life, to cause someone who's dead to rise back up again. And that power shows us 
a greater spiritual reality that happens in our hearts, in our lives. When God raises the spiritually dead to newness in life. The physical miracle, this physical miracle, is an affirmation of the spiritual miracle for every Christian. Listen, without Jesus in your sins, you are dead. All the way dead. Dead and unable to make yourself alive. No one else can make you alive. You can't make yourself alive. But God, being rich in mercy and with His great love for us, made us alive. Caused us to be born again. To wake up from our spiritual slumber. From spiritual death. So if God can raise the physically dead then He alone has the power and the strength to raise the spiritually dead. And that's what He does for you believers. That's what He's done in your heart and in your life. And if you're not in Christ, then you need to be woken up. You need to be made alive. God needs to work like, a, like with the, the nurses who come to the, the table and you're flatlining on the hospital bed. Needing those shockers to wake you up. That is only something that God can do. Only divine power can do that. And so, really, you need a miracle. A miracle in your life to wake you up, to make you alive. And without that miracle, you remain dead. Dead. It's a reminder for us as we witness to family and friends in the Christmas season. Those who do not know Christ, they're dead. They're blind. They need to be spiritually revived, woken up. And how does that happen? Well, God, according to His plan and in His providence, He gives us means, right? Means that He uses to wake people up, to bring them to life. And and the means are, are His Word. Being faithful to share the good news of Christ, to be faithful to proclaim God's Word, to share the good news. And God uses that through hearing, and their believing, He wakes them up. Grants them faith to believe and to be made alive. Only Jesus Christ can do this. In uh, Ezekiel 37, you can turn there in your Bibles. Ezekiel 37. God gives Ezekiel this incredible vision of revival. Now, Ezekiel is a prophet, a prophet to the people of Israel. So God is talking about the future restoration of the people of Israel. When the people of Israel believe and they're made alive. But this is symbolic of also our spiritual resurrection. The power of God to make us alive. Ezekiel 37, verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me. That's Ezekiel. He brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. And it was full of bones. And He led me around among them. And behold, they were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry a.k.a. been dead a long time. And he said to me, A son of man, can these bones live? 
And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Good answer. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the what? The word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. Notice a couple things. What are the means by which the prophet Ezekiel makes these bones alive? He doesn't make them alive, but how does God make them alive? When Ezekiel the prophet prophesies the word, when the word of God is spoken and God says, I will, through my word, cause breath to enter these bones and live. Look at verse 7. So, Ezekiel writes, I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. And he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet in an exceedingly great army. What a scene Ezekiel sees here. Then he said to me in verse 11, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. By the way, they're cut off because of their sin, their rebellion, their idolatry. That's why they're cut off. It's not God's fault, it's theirs. Look at verse 12. Therefore, prophesy and say to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it declares the Lord. This is a promise of God for His people Israel that we believe will be fulfilled in the future when all of Israel repents and believes in the Son of Man whom they have slain. They will be born again. They will be raised up into new life. But Christian, get this. If you're in Christ, that's what happened to you. That's what happened to you. You believed in Jesus. And some of you, you can attest to this. The transformation of your life. You went from a walking dead man to spiritually alive. Knowing Christ. Loving Christ. Having an affection for Him. Made new. The things you used to do, you no longer do. And you love Jesus and follow Him. That's the description of someone who's been made alive, born again. Has that happened to you? 
Is that true in your life? Is there newness of life in you? An affection for God? A desire to follow Christ and follow His commands? A, a, a definite, definite difference between the old self who lived for self and everything else and the new self who lives for Jesus Christ? Is that true in your life? If not, you must be made alive. What needs to happen in your life is what happened physically to Jairus' daughter. The Son must touch you, pump your heart, and cause you to be made alive. And you receive this great salvation by faith, simply believing in Jesus Christ. Let your desperation lead you to dependence. If you're desperate, realizing you're a sinner and condemned, fall at the feet of Jesus. Touch the Son by faith and you will live. And you will meet great compassion, great tenderness, great mercy, and you'll meet infinitely greater power. The power to make you new, to make you alive. Trust in Christ today. And if you are one who trusts in Christ, be a professor of Christ. Proclaim the Word. Be faithful to what God has commanded you to do as an ambassador for Christ, just like Ezekiel, to preach the Word so that God can make dead bones alive. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I ask that you would do what only you can do, that you would make people alive, that the people in this room that are spiritually dead, that they would see Jesus Christ by faith, and that you would bring them to new life, make, cause them to be born again, revived. God, I pray that those of us who are, have been made alive, born again, and we see just with great wonder, remembering even the first time that we saw you, Lord, for who you are, and, and we worshiped you, and we had a new heart to love you and adore you, we see just in these incredible miracles our own testimony, remembering that when we were unclean, just like this woman, we cast ourselves to the feet of Jesus and He restored us. He made us clean. When we were dead in our sins and trespasses, we were touched by the Son, raised to new life because of Jesus Christ. Uh, we just want to behold Christ, worship Him, love Him, and God, be great proclaimers that the glory of these miracles would not die here on a Sunday morning, but that we would go out and tell other people especially when we're surrounded by unsaved family members and friends in the Christmas season, to proclaim Jesus Christ, to show them the true reason for the season. And uh, Lord, help us to be faithful in that. In Jesus' name, amen.